0: The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast episode 11. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy holiday schedules to listen to our podcast series. That is, if you are listening around the December 22nd release date, if not then I do hope that you had a wonderful holiday season and that you are back into the swing of things. The goal of our podcast is to help our listeners expand their opera knowledge, and our content is always drawn from live events, classes, and lectures that we run throughout the opera season here at Lincoln Center in New York City. Today's episode corresponds with the Met's current holiday production of The Barber of Seville, although it focuses on the original Il Barbieri di Siviglia* rather than the Met's shortened and translated version. Another revival from the Talking About Opera archives, this lecture is presented by Albert Iñárato. Mr. Iñárato has enjoyed a successful career as a playwright, stage director, journalist, and frequent lecturer at the Metropolitan Opera Guild, New York Philharmonic, Los Angeles Philharmonic, and the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center, among many other venues. His play, Gemini, brought to the Broadway stage in the late 1970s, was one of the longest continually running non-musical plays with 1,819 performances. His writings have appeared in numerous publications including Opera News, The New York Times, Vogue, and Vanity Fair. Currently, Albert serves as a creative consultant with Center City Opera Theatre in Philadelphia and directs untraditional productions of classic operas and new works alike. I hope you enjoy Mr. Enorato's take on Rossini's Il Barbieri di Siviglia or The Barber of Seville.
2: Gioacchino Rossini was the first world-famous composer. During his lifetime, his name and his music were known everywhere, from Africa to Asia to South America. His works were frequently performed in North America and in Europe. His name was a household word. Though earlier composers had traveled widely, and some had made money, Rossini had a kind of acclaim, made the kind of money, and he was indeed, the kind of celebrity that was a new phenomenon. Rossini's operas were omnipresent, and in Europe at least, so it seemed, was he. He was a natural for fame a great character with a wealth of funny stories about himself, witty observations about the world, and an enchanting manner. Although there were other successful composers, none had as many hits in circulation. None were as genial and attractive to the newly invented interviewer and periodical profiler. Rossini also had the social skills of an old-fashioned composer. He knew how to ingratiate himself with the wealthy, the royal, and the well-connected. He traveled in the highest circles, and that again reinforced his fame. It didn't matter that he had been born in the obscure town of Pesaro in 1792 into dire poverty. It didn't matter that he wrote his last opera, William Tell, at the age of 37, and never wrote another opera, though he lived to 1868 when he was 76. He died as big a star as he had been in his prime. For much of the 20th century, it was typical to dismiss Rossini as a one-opera composer who had also managed some delightful overtures. In his lifetime, though, he was respected by everyone, including intellectuals. Many, like the great writer Stendhal, wrote books about him. It hardly mattered that they were full of lies, some spread by Rossini himself. Beethoven was happy to receive him though the deaf German made short work of most visitors and despised most other composers. When Rossini had settled in Paris, one of the city's great artistic attractions, Wagner paid him court with what was evidently sincere respect not only for his compositions, but also for his musical intellect. Verdi, uh, though he had occasion to feel enraged by Rossini's somewhat capricious behavior, not only acknowledged Rossini's influence on his own work, but wrote, I confess that I cannot help believing Il Barbiere di Siviglia for abundance of ideas, for comic verve, and for truth of declamation, the most beautiful opera buffa in existence. He made that comment in 1898, and he had already written his own comic opera, Falstaff. All of these composers, including someone who was not famous in his lifetime, like Franz Schubert, were influenced by Rossini's remarkable orchestration. Many found his use of harmony original and a spur to their own creativity. Nearly everyone who composed anything, at least into the 1850s, used the crescendo, a device Rossini had perfected to punctuate and underline their musical ideas, not only in operas, but also in symphonies and chamber works. A crescendo is where, as an idea is repeated, it gets louder and louder. Here is an example from The Overture to the Barber of Seville, conducted by James Levine. Rossini, as an older man, routinely dismissed a lot of his compositions and made light of his work. Rossini claimed to have written all of Barber in eight days. The great tenor Manuel Garcia, who had been the first Count Almaviva, agreed with him. But others claimed it had been longer, say two weeks. Even in the older Rossini's lifetime, some critics dismissed him for what was seen as apparent irresponsibility and excessive facility. In the 20th century, such quickness was either doubted or used to put him down. Agony was more in style for a composer's creative periods. Once again, Verdi, about to compose Otello, put things in perspective. Perhaps they will say that Meyerbeer was slow. The critics he was quoting used that to praise the product. I answer that Handel, Mozart, Rossini wrote Israel and Egypt in 15 days, Don Giovanni in a month, Barber in 17 or 18 days. I add that those men, beside their imagination, did not have exhausted blood, were well-balanced natures, had their heads on squarely, and knew what they wanted— They had no need to take inspiration from others, nor to do what the moderns do, a la Chopin, a la Mendelssohn, a la Gounod. They wrote spontaneously as they felt, and they made masterpieces. Amen. Modern research has shown that Rossini had at most 18 days to compose the entire opera. That included an overture on Spanish themes that has been lost. In the 20th century it was claimed, and is still claimed in some places, that Rossini didn't write every note, that he farmed out the recitatives, for example, to others. But a manuscript score in what is absolutely his hand has been found. Every note, including those recitatives, was written down by Rossini himself. All I can think of is the hand cramp that would have caused. It is 600 pages of score. It was only when the overture was lost during rehearsals that he adapted an overture he had already used twice, and while he did use quotations from earlier operas here and there in Barber, they are a tiny part of the work as a whole. Rossini was a complicated man who had endured a tough childhood and had come of age in the world of Italian opera of his time a vicious pit of intrigue, dishonest impresarios, low fees for composers, no copyright protection, capricious star singers, and audiences that could be dangerous. Early on, he acquired the habit of joking about what were serious circumstances. For example, at the age of 12, he and his parents were so destitute that he considered becoming a castrato, prolonging his beautiful treble voice. In later years, he often said, Oh, we were desperate, and I almost sought out the knife, but my four mistresses cried so hard they dissuaded me. What was probably truest about the story is the desperation, and a calculation he was a precocious performer and his parents were in music professionally, that the great days of the castrato were ending. But Rossini was also sexually precocious and promiscuous as a young man. At whatever age he started, he had many mistresses at the same time, seems to have declined opportunities rarely, and did occasionally use his sexual prowess to get ahead by securing the influence of well-placed prima donnas. He also acquired a severe, lifelong case of gonorrhea as a teenager. It gave him a urethral stricture, that is, scar tissue that interrupts the flow of urine. Treatments for this in our time are bad enough. In Rossini's time, without anesthesia, antibiotics, or our surgical instruments, they were agonizing and disabling. During episodes, he was in terrible pain throughout his life, and the condition seems to have contributed to severe depressions and a weakening of his constitution. His retirement from opera at 37 may have had a psychological and physiological basis. Rossini was born in a leap year, February seventeen 1791, five months or so after the marriage of his parents. His father Giuseppe was a trumpet player. His mother Anna was a singer. She was untrained musically but had an excellent ear, and that's how she learned her roles. Rossini told the famous composer Ferdinand Hiller that his mother had a beautiful voice which she used out of necessity, poor mamma. Rossini's father, who also played the horn, worked in theater orchestras and sometimes as a town herald both at Pesaro and nearby Lugo. Somehow Giuseppe bribed his way into being appointed town trumpeter for Pesaro and also connived his hiring by the local military. It was said that Rossini's mother sold her favors when things got tough. Perhaps that's how his father got the money for bribes. It seems likely that one of his godparents, a certain count, was a paramour of Rossini's mother. Her older sister was something of a famous courtesan. Rossini, who seems not to have minded the whispered scandals and never contradicted them, mentioned her illegitimate daughters in his will. Rossini's father played jobs wherever he could. Sometimes he was sent to prison for conflict of interest and needed to be bailed out. Fines added to the inevitable bribes. At his most successful, he earned about $600 a year. When Rossini had become a great celebrity, in part because of Barber, other composers sometimes commiserated about how little he had been paid. Well, I made twice as much in eight days as my father made in a whole year, was one reply by Rossini. It's been calculated that Rossini was paid $1,200, and of course there were no royalties nor any way to protect the work from being pirated. To put the sum in perspective, the tenor, Garcia, was paid $4,000. His parents began to tour a small operatic circuit when Rossini was a child. Anna had to contend with papal censors who forbade women from singing on stage. She and her husband did the occasional midnight flit to avoid arrest. She would sing, usually supporting roles where the character got a nice aria or two, and her husband would play horn or trumpet in the orchestra. At least once they went into hiding when Anna's voice deserted her and their main means of support was cut off for a time, leaving them with debts and unpayable living expenses. The life of hard knocks Rossini endured as a young composer was not in the least foreign to him. When his parents were on the road, Rossini was left with his maternal grandmother and his courtesan aunt. Both ladies spoiled him terribly. They did force him to go to school, where records suggest he rarely attended, and when caught by one of the priests, he would be punished by being forced to do hard labor at a smithy. I got to be strong as a bull, Rossini later said about his education, and I learned all about making horseshoes. It's not clear just where Rossini learned to read and write. He learned about music when his grandmother, in despair, sent him to a butcher in Bologna who took in wayward youth. His music teacher was famous for sleeping standing up. At night, he wrapped himself in his cloak and would sleep in a corner of any arcade, remembered Rossini. The night watchman knew him and never bothered him. Then at first light, he would pull me out of bed and make me play scales. His methods were very old fashioned. Researchers tend to believe this story also that the priests who taught the recalcitrant boys in the butcher shop how to read and write used to beat up the young Rossini as a matter of course. He later received a fan letter from one of his fellow students who mentions in it that he still bore a scar, where Rossini had hit him with a rock as they fought over who would get to steal the wine used for mass, presumably to drink. The heavy-handed priests may have had their reasons. His parents rescued him when he was ten, Back in Bologna, it was only when his father taught him to play the horn that Rossini started to settle into his studies, eventually proving a brilliant pupil. But the family was still in bad straits. It was hard to keep Rossini in school when his parents needed him to be earning money, especially as his mother's voice began to wane. In typical Italian fashion of the time, the Rossini family were contributing not only to their own expenses, but to those of a bevy of needy relatives. Rossini continued to support these people through much of his career. One of the reasons he took on so many commissions at a time was to keep a roof over his extended family's head and food on the table. Anna kept getting small parts, and she and her husband put young Rossini on the stage. He could learn anything in an instant. In small companies, such as that of Ravenna, there were always shortages of singers who could really master small parts, So Rossini, with his powerful treble voice, was offered as a solution. At 14, he played an old man, to some acclaim, even though the part would normally have been sung by a mature bass. By this time, though, he had a regular income as a soloist in the Bolognese churches. It was small, but he got to perform a lot of music firsthand, absorbing the process of preparing performances until it became instinctive. Soon Rossini began composing, not only small works for himself, but cadenzas for prima donnas who wanted to show off and couldn't write their own. One such lady got so mixed up that she made a shambles of what he had written. Rossini, who was sitting in the first row of the theater, burst into laughter spontaneously, which the lady's enemies promptly took up. Her protector decided to send Rossini to jail, though the boy suggested the smithy. But Rossini sweetly and with great charm explained that he had meant no disrespect, and that the lady's mistakes in his music had struck him as funny. He also pointed out some of her other ornaments as being entirely in the wrong style. The protector became more sympathetic. He told me when I had finally reached the point where I could compose an opera, I should come to him. I did, and he honored his promise. This was in 1810 when the 18-year-old Rossini showed up with a short opera called Il Cambiale Matrimonio. The one-time protector of prima donnas produced the opera and paid Rossini about $100. I had never seen so much money together at one time, remembered Rossini. The opera was a modest success and launched Rossini's career. One should always correct the prima donna, remarked Rossini. There might be a future in it. A few years before this, Rossini was given both a scholarship and a stipend to attend the world-famous Accademia in Bologna. The very priest who had admitted Mozart 36 years before admitted Rossini. Tuition was stringent, and for a year, Rossini found himself blocked at composing. Once he had absorbed all the rules, though, he was an unstoppable flow of melodies, songs, string music, and arrangements of music by Haydn and Mozart. His teachers thought he was prodigious, both for his talent and his energy. At 15, he did a stranded opera company a favor by writing down an opera they had announced, but for which they had lost the score. He had heard it once, two years before. His reconstruction was 90% exact. The 10% difference were inventions of Rossini's that everyone thought were improvements. Rossini embarked on the restless life of a professional opera composer. He found a world where large audiences were desperate for new operas and where even small towns were apt to have two opera houses. Impresarios, not always scrupulously honest and inclined to underpay and cheat composers, nonetheless needed composers to provide novelties. Successful novelties were the only way for the impresario to make a profit. Rossini, with hungry relatives to feed, hardly looked back. In one year, 1811-12... He wrote nine operas, including the delightful *Il Signor Bruschino. For all nine, he made a total of $1,600. Not all the operas were hits, but those that were did not pay him royalties and were often stolen, to be repeated without payment and often with ugly changes to reflect local tastes. Rossini's prodigious inventiveness made him famous in the profession. Like most composers of the times, he borrowed from his earlier operas. This has been overstated about Rossini though. His successful works were given so often he was apt to be caught stealing from himself and if an audience caught on, they would be held to pay. Not only was Rossini a great composer, but actually rather like the young Mozart, he had been exposed to so much music, had been performing it from so early an age that he simply knew all the techniques and standard formulas as though they were second nature. And despite the pressure, his serious studies when he was a teenager made him willing to experiment and stretch the forms. He had a hit at La Scala with the comic opera La Pietra Paragone, but in Venice created a sensation with the tragic piece Tancredi. He composed two endings, as was typical of the time. One was happy, for audiences that didn't want to be distressed, the other sad, for the artier crowd. Tancredi was the first Rossini opera to become an international staple. Few could believe it was by a twenty-year-old and had been written in a month at most. It was so famous that the great poet Byron mentions it in Canto Sixteen of Don Juan. The long evenings of duets and trios, the admirations and the speculations, the mamma mia's and the amor mio's, the tanti palpites on such occasions, the lasciamo's and the quavering addio's. In 1815, Rossini met two people who would enormously influence his life and work for a decade. He was summoned to Naples and signed a contract with Domenico Barbaglia, who basically ran opera in an opera-mad city. Barbaglia had started as a dishwasher and then a waiter in Milan. He had used various connections to start up gambling syndicates in that city, and was eventually given the gambling and it would seem the sex-for-hire concession at La Scala. At that point, he started producing operas. He was lured to Naples by the king, who funded him generously. He would run a number of opera houses, including the Andervine in Vienna, where he would become a patron of the great composer Weber. He identified Rossini as the most important Italian opera composer available to him. Though The Neapolitans considered him a dirty Italian. They thought of themselves as sort of French. The influential composers in Naples were anti Rossini. These included the internationally known Giovanni Paisiello. Paisiello called Rossini a licentious composer who paid little attention to the rules of his art, a debaser of good taste. He put Rossini's rapidity of composition down to his having a good memory. Paisiello's biggest hit, given repeatedly on many stages, was called The Barber of Seville. Barbaglia's mistress was one of the great operatic performers of the time, Isabella Colbran. She was magnificent in tragic roles. Typical of the leading female singers of the period, she was a contralto. There were to be many Colbran operas, and during that time, Rossini only composed a few comedies. She began as his leading lady, then became his mistress, and finally became his first wife. Barbaglia seems not to have cared that his mistress traded him in for his composer, The three remained friends after the marriage. Rossini's first opera for Colbran was Elisabetta Regina d'Inghilterra, a magnificent work about Elizabeth I. Though considerable hostility was expected, the first night was an immense triumph and established Rossini as the resident great composer in Naples. Many of the tragic operas for Colbran are masterpieces. They include the fantastic Armida, Semiramide, and Otello. Rossini did not change manner all that much in his serious work, but his craft was immense. He was able to characterize the sorceress Armida and her miraculous world, and also create a powerful drama in Otello with a most moving characterization of Desdemona. But after his first Neapolitan triumph, Rossini was off to Rome, almost immediately. He was to have a busy season there, the crown of which would be the Barber of Seville, though he didn't know he would write such an opera when he left Naples. Rossini supervised a revival of Turco in Italia, which was a big hit. The opera he was in Rome to compose was Torvaldo ed Orlisca. This was a serious opera. Torvaldo was not a success, but during its rehearsals, the impresario of the Argentina Theater, one of the many opera houses in Rome, approached Rossini to write a comic opera. The impresario submitted one libretto. After he read it, Rossini asked, what about the Barber of Seville? The impresario, actually a sick man, clutched at his heart. Paisiello had wild and passionate fans, and Rossini was risking a scandalous first night. We'll call our opera Alma Viva, ossia l'inutile precauzione. Alma Viva or the futile precaution, said Rossini. Uh, the impresario didn't think that ruse would work. But Rossini was adamant, also pointing out they had already engaged the great tenor Manuel Garcia, and his part, Almaviva, would be the biggest in the opera. Rossini and his librettus Cesare Sterbini did not simply lift the libretto Paziello had set, what would have been expected. They went back to the original play and worked as close collaborators. This was perhaps the first time Rossini had had so much input into a text he was setting. The Barber of Seville was the first hit play by the Frenchman known as Beaumarchais. His real name was Pierre-Augustin Caron. It was given in Paris in 1775. The Barber was the first of three plays that revolve around the canny barber who later becomes a servant and is named Figaro. The others are The Marriage of Figaro and The Guilty Mother, or La Mère Coupable, Beaumarchais was a spy, land speculator, gun runner and a passionate supporter of the revolution in America. All of his plays have a strong political message that all men are equal and to be born noble is not to have more rights than anyone else. Of course, Mozart set The Marriage of Figaro. Rossini may have had that opera in mind when he left at the barber. But while The Marriage of Figaro is a complex plot with a lot of characters, barber is simpler here we first meet the barber and see him aid the dashing young Count Almaviva in wedding the middle-class girl Rosina, who of course becomes his countess. They have to rescue her from her rapacious guardian, Bartolo, who is aided by her singing teacher, the disreputable priest Basilio. All of these characters will show up older and not necessarily wiser in the marriage of Figaro. Beaumarchais's first draft was actually an opera comique, an opera with dialogue. It was rejected in that form, but even when writing it as a play, Beaumarchais left opportunities for songs to be inserted. Rossini may have had reason to regret accepting this commission. The Teatro Argentina, where the opera would be presented, was thought of as the toilet of Roman theaters. Rossini and his cast were confronted by a filthy place. The small rehearsal rooms had no heating, though it was winter in Rome. The cast all had to fight colds. Midway in the process, two things happened to the impresario. He went bankrupt and dropped dead. It was the need of his family to cover at least some of his debts that prompted them to scrape up enough money for Barber to proceed. Rossini wrote the second act for a sick cast, wondering if he would actually be paid. Everyone thought the bass singing Basilio had the evil eye. The first night confirmed it. Rossini was greeted with jeers and insults when he mounted the podium wearing a part of his fee, a hazel suit with gold buttons. Things went downhill from there. Catcalls continued with whistling and assorted insults. Then in scene two, Basilio, the singer with the evil eye, made his entrance and fell through a trapdoor, breaking his nose. He clambered back on stage, blood flooding out of his nose. There were cries of encore. He tried to sing the famous aria La Columnia anyway, but constantly had to use a large handkerchief to staunch the blood. The audience started imitating the gestures and making rude noises. Then during the finale to Act One, a black cat sauntered on stage. The audience started meowing. The cat would not leave the stage despite increasingly desperate efforts to get it off. Finally, it leapt into the arms of the maid, Berta, who was trying to sing her part. She was terrified of cats, started to scream, and was scratched for her pains. The first act curtain fell a pandemonium. Rossini stayed in front and applauded the cast. This infuriated the audience. They thought he was deliberately showing them disrespect. According to the first Rossina, nobody listened to the second act. None of the singers could be heard over the noise anyway. Accounts of the next few days vary. It does seem true that Rossini ran home to the inn where he was staying and hid under the bed. Whether or not a mob followed in there to wreak vengeance is uncertain. Eventually, though, a mob did show up screaming his name. Rossini climbed to the roof, got into the stable, and hid under the hay. He was seen. The crowd, which was carrying torches, followed to the stable. The landlord begged Rossini to come out, fearing they would burn the place down. So did Garcia, the first Almaviva. The crowd began to become hostile. Somebody threw a rock and hit Garcia in the face. When expecting the worst, the trembling Rossini, all of 22, remember, made an appearance he received the biggest ovation he ever had in his life. The second performance had just been given, and it had been a sensation. Rossini had risked his fee in not showing up, but that was forgiven by the impresario's family, who saw their dirty theater jammed to the rafters. Bradbieri was given very widely in the next few years. Often it was attacked in the press, as trivial in England, as noisy in Germany, as confusing in Paris, but it didn't matter. It wouldn't go away, and eventually it became perhaps the favorite opera by somebody else of Beethoven, Brahms, Schubert, Wagner, and Verdi, and of course tens of thousands of listeners. Barber's Overture is among the most familiar ever written. It's hard to imagine it was written for two earlier operas, both of them serious, though there is rather a grand beginning. kind of a dance, a tarantella, that suggests both the sunny mood and the comic intrigues to come. Among several tunes is this one. Remember the horn was Rossini's father's instrument and he played it himself. We are in Seville in the 1770s. There is a little square dominated by a fine house. This is owned by the prominent doctor, Dr. Bartolo, and it houses his adorable young ward, Rosina. It's just after dawn. A small group of musicians creep on stage. A young man named Fiorello keeps order. Soon they are joined by a gentleman in a long cloak. This is the young and handsome Count Almaviva. He's hired the musician so that he may serenade Rosina, who he has seen at the Prado and with whom he has fallen in love, entirely and unquestionably. He starts with a slow, tender air, urging the radiant girl to gently wake and hear his song, and then he gets excited. Count anxiously waits for a sign from the house that the girl has at least heard, but no one stirs. Sadly, he pays the musicians. They thank him, so profusely he has trouble getting rid of them, and they make a great deal of noise. Basta, stop it, he cries. <laughs> The count is very sad. He sends Fiorello away. He's wondering what his next move should be when... The count wonders who this might be and if it's good luck or bad luck for him. He decides to hide and see what ensues. Of course it was Figaro, the barber of Seville. He's up and about early to be on his morning rounds, but first he just has to drop everything and tell us how wonderful he is. In this, possibly the most famous operatic aria ever, with its repetitions of Figaro, as the barber lists all the people who depend on him, this flamboyant character is captured indelibly. Figaro is running down his day when the Count steps forward. He has recognized his former servant, one who it seems ran away. Figaro is all for running away again when the Count stops him. How is it you are so fat and healthy-looking, the Count asks Figaro. ''Destitution, Your Excellency,'' he responds. The Count understands that enlisting Figaro involves paying him. The Count tells him that he's here trying to meet the daughter of the old man who owns the house. ''Not daughter, ward,'' explains Figaro. ''And better, he gets into the house every day. He shaves the owner of the house and knows the ward well.'' Suddenly the door to the house's balcony is opened. It is none other than Rosina with a letter in her hand. No sooner is she on the balcony than her guardian appears, jealous and suspicious. What's that letter? The words to the new opera with the aria called the Futile Precaution, she says. Figaro and the Count, who have hidden under the balcony, laugh. As Bartolo complains about how awful the arts are nowadays, Rosina drops the letter, pretending the wind blew it away. She asks Bartolo to find it. He looks but can't see it because the Count very quickly snatched it up. Bartolo realizes he's been tricked and berates his ward and tells her he's going to have the balcony walled up. She responds with spirit. Bartholo pulls Rosina back into the house. The count understands immediately that she is a virtual prisoner. Figaro wants to read the letter. Rosina asks her serenader to find some way to meet her, tell her his name and station. She'll help all she can. She is determined to break her chains. The Count admires her spirit, but Figaro warns him that the old man won't be so easy to get around. Besides being of a vicious and suspicious nature, he wants to force Rosina to marry him so he can get his hands on her considerable fortune. She doesn't only need love, she needs rescue. At that moment the door opens. The two men hide as Bartolo gives strong instruction that no one is to be allowed in without his express permission. Even if the priest and singing teacher, Don Basilio, comes by, he will have to wait outside until the doctor returns. To himself, he promises he will marry Rosina this very day. He marches off. Figaro notices that behind the door of the balcony, Rosina is gesturing. He tells the count this is his opportunity to introduce himself. But the count doesn't want to reveal his true identity. He wants to be loved for himself. Fine, says Figaro, handing him his guitar. But tell her in song, the count sings a lovely serenade, saying his name is Lindoro, and that he's poor. Rosina echoes his melody. he continues, and she echoes him again.. <laughs> Rosina has been yanked from her place by a spy inside the house. The count is so excited that he must see her this very day. Figaro promises to set his imagination to work, only he wants the count's word. The reward will be gold in abundance. I'll shower you with it, replies the count. The idea of all that gold, Figaro's brain catches fire. The first idea is that the count will dress up like a common soldier. There's a regiment in town. In fact, the colonel is my friend, remarks the count. All the better. As a soldier, there will be the chance to demand to be billeted by Bartolo. The count is impressed. Better still, cries Figaro. The soldier should be drunk ubriaco. But why, asks the count because Dombartolo will be much likelier to trust a man who seems confused and out of control. Figaro congratulates himself, and the count joins him.
3: Umbriaco, si, Umbriaco, mio signore, si fingera. Umbriaco, si, signore. Umbriaco,
0: ma perché, ma perché, ma perché?
3: Edun che poco in sé Ed vino casca già Il tutor, credete a me Il tutor si fiderà Il tutor, credete, credete
2: The Count is about to go and get his uniform when it strikes him. He doesn't know how to get a hold of Figaro, just where is his shop? Is His Excellency serious? Everybody knows Figaro's shop. You can even see it from here. As Figaro describes the splendors of his shop he gets excited and Rossini uses the crescendo to sweep us up into his pride.
3: Numero 15, una
2: The two finish their irresistible duet full of hope and joy at the intrigues that are soon to come. So far, we've been listening to a recording with Beverly Sills, Nikolai Gedda, and Cheryl Milnes, but now we'll hear Maria Callas. Originally, Rosina was a contralto role, as was typical of starring female roles at the time. Eventually, higher florid sopranos, called coloraturas, appropriated Rossina. Though Callas does use some upward ornaments, she sings in Rossini's original keys. In scene two, we are inside Bartolo's house, in the main room where everyone enters. Rossina gets an entrance aria. First, there is some importance in the introduction. This is, after all, the diva. Then Rossina tells us she's just heard a voice that thrilled her to the core. Una voce poco fa'. And Lindoro will soon be mine. I have sworn it. Of course, just like Figaro, Rosina, having made her determination to wed Lindoro clear, wants to tell us all about herself. She is, she'll have us know, sweetness itself, docile, respectful, obedient, and loving. But ma, in Italian, if you cross her, she can become a veritable viper. Figaro enters, but they have barely a second to talk because Don Bartolo has returned to the house. Figaro hides as Bartolo enters and picks a fight with Rosina. He is very suspicious of her in general. She stomps off in a rage. He summons two chief servants, Ambrogio, a small part, and the rather more substantial part of Berta. He wants to know if the rascally barber has been around plotting with Rosina, but between sneezing and dozing off, the servants are no help. He chases them off. Don Basilio, a priest, and Rosina's singing teacher, enters. He is also Don Bartolo's cohort in various schemes. The doctor is glad to see him. He will need his help, for by force or by love, he plans to marry Rosina by tomorrow. He has good reason to hurry, says the priest, because Count Almaviva is in town. They both suspect that the Count is an unknown admirer of Rosina's, though they have never seen him. Something must be done, but what? Basilio has the answer. It is something that will ruin Almaviva and get him thrown out of town. Calumny. La Calumnia. This is Nicola Zaccaria. In this famous aria, Basilio lays out the way libel works, building up little by little until it explodes like a cannon burst. Once again, Rossini uses a crescendo to make this process that much more vivid in the music. Bartolo suggests that he and Basilio go to his room to plot. There will be plenty of money in it for Basilio. Figaro comes out of his hiding place having heard it all. He sees it as a game, a challenge, not a threat. He will need Rosina's help. She enters just at that moment. Figaro tells her of Bartolo's plan. She sees it as a game, too. Bartolo, when it comes right down to it, will have to deal with her, and that's something he would regret. But what about the gentleman Figaro was talking to under her window? My cousin, and he has a terrible symptom. He's dying of love. For whom? Figaro pretends to have forgotten her name. Rosina presses him. Poverina, poor little girl, says Figaro teasingly. Then he spells out the name, leading to a burst of joy from Rosina. Here are Maria Callas and Tito Gobbi.
4: Il nome.
0: Il nome ancora, il nome. Ah, che bel nome. Si chiama, si chiama,
4: si chiama. E ben si chiama.
0: Poverina. Poverina. Oh no, si chiama R.O. R.O. Brava, sì? Sì. R.O. Ande hanna rosi
2: That is the start of their wonderful duet, Dunque io son. Then it is I. She cries, delighted and in love. When can they speak? Soon, says Figaro. In the meanwhile, why not write Lindoro un biglietto, a little love note? A love note! Cries Rosina, shocked. Here it is.
0: Resto, presto col biglietto.
3: Vecchè bestia, vecchè il maestro faccio a lei.
4: Fortunati affetti
0: miei, mio
2: takes the note and runs out with it. Bartolo enters and begins to question Rosina, everything makes him suspicious. He sees ink on her fingers, and a sheet of note paper is missing, and the nib of the pen has been sharpened. To whom has she been writing? She has a clever answer to all his questions, which just enrages him. Does she know to whom she is talking? A un dottor de la mia sorte. For a doctor of his standing, to be even talking to a young lady is beneath him. But dignity soon gives way to the wild pattern that is a feature of Rossini's comic writing. <laughs> that is very hard to sing the expert we heard is the late renato capecchi on the sill's recording which we will stay with for the remainder of act one bartolo and rosina leave there is loud knocking at the door berta the complaining and sneezing servant answers it
3: Faccia, l'ubriaco, chi sarà? Chi sarà? E hey, di Pasa! maledetti, maledetti. Ehi! Hey. cosa vuol, signor soldato? Ah, si, sì, sì. si, costumi costume, hai
0: Siete voi? Aspetta un poco, siete
3: voi? E dottor balordo! E balordo, Che balordo! Ha! Ah, ah, Bertoldo, Bertoldo, Bertoldo. E destra diabolo, e destra diabolo. E dottor barbar, dottor, eh? dottor bar. eh? bar. eh? bar.
5: Ah, bravissimo! E dottor barbaro!
0: Bravissimo! E dottor bar
2: Of course, it is the Count lurching in, loudly pretending to be a drunk soldier. That has brought on Dr. Bartolo. He suspects nothing, and the first set to the men have is about Bartolo's name, which the soldier can't seem to grasp, finally thinking it is, as we heard, barbarian, Dr. Barbaro. The yelling brings Rosina on. The soldier whispers he is Lindoro. He insists to Bartolo that he has been billeted in the house. Bartolo equally loudly insists he is exempt from billeting. The soldier demands to see proof, and while the doctor hunts, he tells Rosina to drop her handkerchief. She understands. She drops it a second after he has dropped a note. Bartolo sees the maneuver, but Rosina is able to substitute a laundry list, which, pretending to weep, she gives to Bartolo. The soldier takes offense at her weeping and threatens Bartolo, who roars back. This brings both Basilio and Berta on stage. They are followed by Figaro. He pretends to be trying to calm things, but neither the Count nor Dr. Bartolo care to be quiet. The noise brings more knocking. It is the police. They demand entry, and when they get in, they want an explanation. Everybody tries to give them one.
3: This is a soldier, Mr. Nova Tratado, SI SINYOR, SI SINYOR, SI you a SI SI for such a reason to SI SI a SI SI
2: The police chief says he understands all too well who's at the source of the problem, and he grabs the drunken soldier. The count whispers his true identity to the officer, produces a paper to prove it, and is unhanded fast, and then saluted. Everyone is Freda Edimobile, Immobile, shocked, frozen in place, all but Figaro, who can barely stop laughing. Buffalo makes more noise, but everyone calls for quiet and tries to understand what has happened with no success. The act hurtles to its end. Act two starts in the same room a little later. Bartolo is alone, full of suspicions. He has checked up on that soldier and has found that no one in the regiment has ever heard of him. He is sure he was a spy sent by the villainous Count Almaviva. There's another knock on the door. Since the servants are never around, Bartolo opens it himself to confront a young, sallow-complexioned priest who intones a greeting, Pace gioia sia voi," peace and joy be with you, over and over, driving Bartolo crazy. In asides, the young priest tells us he's Almaviva, back to the fray, and Bartolo wavers between trying to remember where he's seen that face before and clutching his head.
3: Basta! 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 basta Perdido! Gioia! Gioia! Pace! Pace! Ho oh, capito! Ho oh, capito! Ho oh, cercando! Venti cuore, Pace e gioia! gioia basta! Goia, basta! Gioia, basta! basta Perdido! Pace!
2: The young priest finally introduces himself as Don Alonso, teacher of music and the pupil of Don Basilio. He, it turns out, is too ill to come. I must run to him, cries Bartolo. Oh, he's not that sick, cries Almaviva. Immediately, the old doctor starts throwing him out, until Don Alonso mentions the dreaded name, Almaviva. Don Alonso claims to have gotten a letter from the count to Rosina. He tells Bartolo to give it to Rosina to prove the count is writing to one of his mistresses and is unworthy of her. Bartolo recognizes a good calumny when he hears one. Alonso is indeed a pupil of Basilio. The Count hands over the note and realizes too late that he's gotten mixed up and handed Bartolo Rosina's letter to him. There's nothing he can do about it now because Rosina herself enters for her music lesson. She is shocked to see her lindoro dressed up like a priest, but covers her cry by saying she has a cramp in her foot. Alonso offers to accompany her in music of her choice. Oh, I'll sing from the futile precaution. Bartolo complains, but Alonso sits at the harpsichord and Rosina sings her lesson scene. Rossini's aria for this is called Contro un Cor. Its text promises the hero, Lindoro, a victory in love against a tyrant. But for a long time, prima donnas constructed their own lesson scenes. Some would start with Contro un Cor and then sing everything, from the Queen of the Night to Coming Through the Rye. Nowadays, of course, usually we just hear Rossini's aria. Rossini contrasts the rather grand beginning with a more rapid section in which Rossina is able to address her lindoro under cover of singing the music. Carried away, the Count joins in briefly like any good music master. Here are Maria Callas and Luigi Alva. Viva is enchanted by Rosina's singing. Bartolo likes her voice, but this contemporary music, it's so ugly. In his days, there were composers and singers. Why, listen to this tune, and Bartolo sings, changing the female's name from Giannina to Rosina. Figaro enters while he's doing this and imitates him behind his back. Bartolo catches him and demands to know what he's doing. I've come to shave you. Not today. Come back tomorrow. Figaro goes into a huff. Here are all the reasons he cannot come back tomorrow. In fact, he has killed himself to come today, only to hear Bartolo tone, I don't want you today. Oggi non posso. Bartolo complains that the barber is so temperamental he will have to submit to a shave. He tells Figaro to go get the towels and bowls in the cabinet along the hall and gives him the keys. Then he thinks better of it. He takes the keys himself and goes off. Figaro, of course, wants to get his hands on those keys and gets Rosina to describe the key that opens the outside window on the balcony. Bartolo rushes back in. He's too suspicious of the barber to leave him alone with Rosina. He sends him off with the keys after all. He tells the Count he doesn't trust that barber. You're right, he's a first-rate scoundrel, says the music master. There's a huge noise from inside. All kinds of crockery can be heard crashing. Bartolo goes rushing off. Of course, Figaro has planned the distraction so the Count and Rosina can be alone. They declare their mutual love and plan to wed. Bartolo comes back in, in despair. Figaro has just broken everything. Figaro follows him and winks at the Count and Rosina. He has gotten just the key he needed. Bartolo demands a shave, and this will give Figaro every opportunity to distract him from the Count and Rosina. Things are going swimmingly when Don Basilio himself walks in. Bartolo is stunned. Rosina, the Count, and Figaro have to contrive a way to get rid of him without making Bartolo suspicious. That everyone is so shocked to see him shocks Basilio. The three intriguers have to convince him he is deathly ill. He must have some horrible illness. In fact, says the Count, here's a purse uh, to buy medicine. Presto a letto, quick, get to bed. Basilio is amazed. Do I really look that ugly, Bruta? Oh, Bruta sai, very ugly. Then the Count starts a delectable ensemble where one by one they wish him Buonasera e via di qua. Good evening, and get out of here.
3: Presto letto, presto al letto, presto al letto, <laughs>
2: Buffalo, however, enjoying all the attention, keeps stalling, bidding them a good night. They've had it. Basilio finally gone, Figaro can swathe Bartolo's face in towels and keep him away from Rosina and the Count. Almaviva tells her that he and Figaro will come back at exactly midnight. They have the key to the window and will come in and run off with her, and he will wed her. She is thrilled and agrees to be ready. Figaro continues to distract Bartolo, who is trying to listen. The Count leans in further to Rosina and starts to tell her that he has given Bartolo the wrong letter as part of his disguise. But he doesn't get all the way because Bartolo hears that last word, disguise, and explodes from his chair. Ripping off towels and flinging shaving soap, he chases Count Figaro and Rossina around the room. The two men run out of the house. Rossina escapes to her room. Rossini wrote the opera to go right on. But in the productions of today, there is usually a break here, and we are in scene two of act two. Bertha, the sneezing servant, enters housecleaning. She's complaining about Bartolo, who is not only insanely suspicious, but stingy, too. Then she sings a delightful song about old men seeking young wives. This is called an aria di sorbetto, which denoted an aria given to a secondary character. Often the composer farmed it out to someone else, or the singer simply inserted something of his or her own choosing. This was the kind of part Rossini's mother sang. Perhaps remembering her, Rossini came up with a jaunty, memorable tune. Bertha leaves as Bartolo enters with Don Basilio. Bartolo is just checking that Basilio has never heard of someone named Don Alonso and has never seen the strange music master before. But Basilio has no doubt that that was Almaviva himself. The full purse he gave him is proof. Bartolo is going off to get the notary to get the marriage contract with Rosina drawn up immediately. Basilio points out, not only is it about the storm, but that the notary is already preoccupied with Figaro, who is marrying off one of his nieces. The barber has no nieces, barks Bartolo. He and the Count are up to something. He gives Basilio the front door key and sends him after the notary with orders to bring him here immediately. Basilio leaves and Bartolo calls for Rosina. He still has the letter the Count, disguised as Don Alonso, slipped him by mistake. Bartolo shows it to Rosina to prove that her Lindoro is making sport of her with his master, Count Almaviva, embarrassing her. Rosina is deeply hurt and agrees to marry Bartolo. Bartolo is thrilled, but decides to run and get the police just in case Figaro and Count show up armed. He advises Rosina to lock herself in her room. Meanwhile... A torrential thunderstorm breaks out, rattling the windows and shaking the house. Nevertheless, wrapped in heavy cloaks, Figaro and the Count come in, using the key Figaro lifted from Bartolo. They've climbed up a ladder placed against the balcony, and they open the balcony window from outside. They are a little spooked by the thunder and lightning. Hearing noises, Rosina comes in. Almaviva goes to embrace her, only to be rebuffed. He's shocked. So is Figaro. He asks for an explanation. He was only pretending to love her to procure her for the evil Count Almaviva. But I am Count Almaviva. From here on in, we'll hear the Sills recording. Rosina is thrilled that all at a stroke she has found her love true after all. Figaro has some impatience, after all they better be going, but the Count also has to express his joy. As the two lovers get more and more worked up, Figaro is keeping an eye out the window and complaining.
3: <speaking in Spanish>
2: Suddenly, Figaro cries out in horror. There are two people with lanterns coming into the house. They have to get out. Ziti, ziti, piano, piano. Softly, softly, they have to get the ladder they've left against the balcony and escape.
3: Piano, late.
4: Piano,
2: The latter is gone. Worse, Don Basilio comes in with a notary. Well, the notary can marry Almaviva and Rosina with Figaro and Basilio as witnesses. That's a great idea. Basilio, however, refuses. He wants to wait for Bartolo. The Count shows him a nice ring in one hand and a pistol in the other. He can choose either the ring or two bullets. Basilio chooses the ring and Almaviva and Rosina are married. Bartolo comes running in with police full of accusations against Almaviva. But he is faced with the marriage and the fact that far from being the thief he is accused of being, Almaviva is a count. Once again he has the opportunity to prove his identity. There was not much for Bartolo to do, but admit removing the latter was indeed a futile precaution and resign himself. The count gets to sing. Since the first Almaviva was a great star, Rossini composed a long rondo finale for him. Later, he used it as a basis for the finale to La Cenerentola. It's a stressful sing at the end of a long evening, but now is usually included in performances. Rights restrictions prevent us from playing an excerpt. And so we go to the work's final number. <laughs> Catchy tune is started by Figaro, then sung by everybody in turn, and then by all. May love and fidelity reign forever in the newlywed couple's hearts.
1: much for listening to episode 11 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do us a favor and leave a comment or a review in iTunes. These reviews help the podcast become more visible and allow us to educate the widest possible audience. Also, this podcast is our gift to you, but if you feel like making a tax-deductible donation to our efforts, especially as the year is coming to an end, you can do so at metguild.org podcast. We will look forward to being with you one last time in 2015 with an episode devoted to Johann Strauss II's Mouse" on December 30th. Until then, I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and thank you for listening.